What's up, peeps? Before you get into the episode, just a quick message. Did you know that Rebranded Safety is brought to you by Risk Fluent? Rebranded Safety is essentially our campaign to achieve our purpose, which is to make the working world better by Rebranded Safety one interaction at a time. We value a people-centered approach that delivers positive impact on the risk. We deliver three types of services, technical, transformational, and fire. It's the last show I wanted to talk to you about. If you value what we value and you want some support driving a culture change or decluttering your safety systems, or you want to improve human performance and it's our transformational support that can help you, or maybe you want a highly experienced registered fire risk assessor to carry out an assessment on your building, design an emergency plan or review the fire safety design for your new building, then it's our fire support service that can help you. But before you get in touch with us, it's important that you want to have impact on the actual risk and you value a people-centered approach. If you don't, that's fine. You'll find someone that can help you. But if you do value those, then get in touch with us at riskfluentltd.com or email me, james, at riskfluentltd.com. But for now, I'll let you get into the episode. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, Pete? Welcome back to and Safety. Special bonus episode this week. Um, you've just had your, your weekly episode. You're like, whoa, another podcast? Where's this coming from? This is a special standalone bonus episode brought to you by OpsLock. Let's jump into the intro and I'll tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation it's complexity health and safety has gone mad health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past there's no one solution and one problem the problem is that we are looking for one solution does the structure of the team allow them to flourish feel safe enough to be uncomfortable the environment defines our behaviors people aren't the problem they're the solution rebranding safety crushing the stereotype brought to you by risk Blue. what's up peeps welcome back to rebranding safety if you're new here, rebranding safety does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a rebrand safety. We do that here on YouTube and on the podcast as well. So hit that subscribe button and all those magical algorithm thingamajigs. So a bonus episode we've got. So you've had your weekly episode. Your phone goes bing because you've got notifications on. I know you do. And it says, got another episode. What's that? What is that? It's a bonus episode. It's a bonus episode brought to you by OpsLock. I'm not going to say too much about OpsLock because today we're going to talk about the CEO, but ultimately OpsLock is a very interesting tech company trying to essentially revolutionize the way that we look at risk. We've got some new phrases which we're going to talk about today, particularly predictive mitigation. Um, I really love the way that Joe talks about risk as kind of decision-making guidance, which really gets you thinking when you call it something different. But ultimately today we're going to get into the current state of risk assessment. You know that's something I can talk about all day long. Um, but Joe's got some thoughts on it, obviously, because they're trying to revolutionize the world of risk assessment and they're doing that through their tech company. Let's jump into the episode, let Joe introduce himself, and then we'll get right into the depths of risk assessment. We're going to talk about what the problem is with it now, what it looks like, what it should look like, where we need to go from here. Let's jump into the episode and I'll see you at the end. All right. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Hello, James. How are you? I'm okay, thank you, mate. Thank you very much for asking. That's very kind of you. I am grand, thank you. How are you? I am surviving. Surviving? Okay. Is that hard at the moment, is it? 
I know it's not that hard. It's just, uh, you know, life of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. Right, mate. So why don't you just kick us off with an introduction to who you are and what you do. And then, um, and then we're going to get, we're going to kind of talk about how we manage risk and what might necessarily be wrong with that. Absolutely. So um, obviously, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Joe Meadows. I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called OpsLock. Um, we work in the, in the health and safety space. Uh, we're, we're, we work in what we, we call predictive mitigation. So helping people sort of predict and, and prevent incidents in the workplace. And uh, that's, that's kind of what got us connected here. And um, professionally, my background, uh, more on the offshore side. So worked in the ultra deep water construction industry for about a decade. Um, you know, professional background, I bought uh, what's called a master mariner's license. Um, and yeah, well, he was formerly the head of the, the marine and health and safety departments on a, on a deep water construction ship working all over the world. So that's, uh, that's kind of what got me into this and, and why we're talking here today. If you're a master mariner, that means you can be a captain of any ship you mentioned to me when we had our little pre-chat. What's the kind of biggest ship that you have been a captain of? So I, I, I've never been the captain of a, of a big ship. I, the, the biggest seat I, I sat in was uh, second in command. Part of, what, it's part of what drove me to entrepreneurship was uh, when you get to that level, you're, you're kind of waiting for people to die or retire and that can get boring. All right. Well, okay, uh, that's awkward. But, but I had the... You know, had had the ticket. Uh, I was was chief officer of a, a eleven thousand six hundred and eighty ton deep water construction ship. So that sounds big, but but in the shipping world, that's not that large. Uh, it, it was big operationally. So um, again, we had about two hundred crew, where the typical cargo ship has about fifteen, mm -hmm. uh, and we did uh, ultra deep water pipeline, cable, and subsea component installation. So we would do, you know, fairly complex projects for, for months at a time. And, and it was a little bit more of a sort of, um, ebbs and flows type of operation. So we'd often do, uh, sort of ramp ups in certain parts of the world where we'd, we'd get everything ready. And then we go and work on a project for anywhere from two months to, to six months. And, uh, you know, pretty high stakes stuff and, and really neat, but uh, it was a fun way to spend my 20s kind of traveling all over the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to talk about in the pub now. Well, it's just, um, this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole already and we haven't even started, but ultimately thinking about what your background is and we're going to talk about assessing risk today and being a kind of mariner and being in a position where you're making decisions probably on, in a very dynamic situation on, on a ship in the ocean in a probably one of the most uncontrollable uh, places in the world um you must you must have a you must have developed quite a unique sense of risk management risk assessing making decisions in your own career prior to even thinking about what you do now yeah, I think that's a pretty astute observation. Um, you know, in the maritime space, for for the listeners who have exposure to that, um, you, you, there, there's sort of a precedent that makes I think, especially officers on ships, quite sensitive to to the concerns of a health and safety professional. So, um, in the '80s, there was a, a ferry in Europe, the Herald of Free Enterprise, uh, that essentially didn't have good safety management procedures in place. Uh, pulled away from the dock and had not fully closed the bow door, 
which caused water to rush in and, and essentially the, the ferry flipped over quite quickly, killing, killing a large number of people on board. And after that took place, uh, the International Maritime Organization instituted a, a regulation whereby any ship uh, over 500 tons, which is a small tugboat essentially, would uh, have to implement on a, a consistent level a safety management system within the organization. So from that time, I think the idea of risk management and, and this sort of systematic approach to addressing and mitigating the risks in the workplace is something that, that I think the maritime industry actually does quite well uh, on an industry level. Uh, but I, I think at the same time, especially coming from the offshore construction space, I mean, we, we worked quite, quite closely with the energy industry. Um, and I think as everybody knows, that's a, that's a space where uh, this has reached kind of a tipping point as it relates to the volume and complexity of the processes that we're engaged in. So uh, I think with that sensitivity and, and coming from an operations background, you know, not being somebody who, who studied safety in college, but was very sensitive to it, um, I, I think I was, I was particularly sensitive to this idea that, hey, we have a job to do here and I'm all for safety and I'm all for managing risk, but I think we need to be evaluating the, the costs and the design of the processes by which we do that, uh, because I had responsibilities on the operation side as well as on the safety side. And, and it was coming to it with that angle that, uh, that I ended up saying, hey, this is all a bit cracked. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting. I, we've had um, the head of safety, the previous head of safety for, I always say it wrong, but Maersk or Mask or Maersk, Maersk, the international shipping company. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's just fascinating. And we've had another guy who was a, I can't remember what he was, like a ship captain or something. And um, he is, he's a fascinating industry. Um, and I do think when you're in those type of operational roles in those, in those such, in such dynamic situations, I think you develop a very, a very unique uh, understanding of risk and, and, and risk assessment in the, in the moment, not, not risk assessment in what some might think it is, is e.g. a piece of paper, but actual assessing and reacting to risk in the moment. Yeah. I, I again, I think, I think you're totally right because um, you know, I think that could all boil down to, to the, just the mechanics of, of that situation. So mm -hmm. I think risk assessments, are taken a bit more seriously in an environment where you have a fire, you, you can't call the fire department. You got to put on a fire suit and you're, you're on the fire team. Or if you have a, a medical emergency that needs to be dealt with locally. So I think it does uh, probably create a little bit of an incentive around saying, Hey, this isn't just an exercise. We're not just going to go through the motions here. We need to be sensitive to, to what we're doing and is what we're doing, helping us not only stay safe today, but stay safe tomorrow. So. I, uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. Cool. Right. So on that note, I know that you have have maybe maybe like me a bit of a bee in your bonnet about about how we currently do our risk assessments. So why why don't you kind of why don't you kind of maybe jump on the soapbox for a little bit and, and kind of have have your a so-called maybe a rant, I don't know, but like, you know, set the problem. What do you think is the problem? With, with how we're assessing risk. And then I, I'm, anyone that listens to the podcast will know that I can get on a rant about how we assess risk. So I think we'll get into it from there. Yeah, totally. So, so I guess um, from my perspective, and again, we, we spoke about this a little bit um, you know, before we hit record here, but 
um, you know, I, I come from an environment you know, coming from, from that offshore environment. I think in many ways um, we're doing the things that, that so many uh, other companies are aspiring to, you know, they're, they're already instituting all these things. They have the budget to go ahead and, and have a, a risk assessment for every single task and to you know, have those toolbox talks and really they, they have the license to take that step back in a way that I think is focused on, on reducing risk in the workplace. Um, that being said, the mechanisms by which we do this, in my opinion, are, are so broken. And, and I don't mean broken as if they worked at one time. I don't think they've ever really worked uh, beyond, and, and, and I can elaborate on that. But I think if we talk about risk assessments in the traditional sense, uh, what I could put out there is that we, you know, so many companies are focused on this. So many of these listeners are going to be spending so much time creating risk assessments and reviewing risk assessments annually and doing all these things that are all in the name of, of safety and increasing awareness and helping people make smart decisions. And for me, as somebody who spent time in the field, I mean, I've joked with so many people, so many heads of safety that they know, oh, if they put on the second last page of a risk assessment, if you read this, I'll give you, you know, $100 or 100 pounds they wouldn't have to give away very much money. I mean, these are so much, so theatrical in their approach. And, and I think so often the dialogue around that talks about culture. It's, oh, we haven't sufficiently guilted our employees to read these boring, overwritten documents. And, and that's where we're failing from a safety perspective. And I guess what, what I believe, and I think maybe what we believe as a company is a little bit more on the idea that that's such a cop-out. And the reason that people don't engage with these things is that they don't actually apply to the work that's being done. You know, what um, we were saying earlier, you know, risk is dynamic and paperwork is not. And if we continue to approach these dynamic problems with these static old fashioned approaches to them, we're just gonna continue spinning our wheels and we're gonna be continue to be caught in this environment where we just talk, you know, we talk about how we can do risk assessments better as if, the core document is perfect when in our belief, the whole structure of this approach, you know, if you think about a risk assessment as a product that we act people to use, this product is, is pretty horribly designed. Um, I'll leave it there, but, but that's, that's my basic opinion. I can elaborate if you'd like. Well, there's one thing that you said, when you say you don't think risk assessments have ever worked, that that's a big statement to make. So I, I kind of want to get into that. Um, what, in your opinion, are risk assessments trying to achieve and why do they not achieve that if you don't think they've ever worked? Okay. All right. I'll, I'll take that bait. Um, so I think for us, we, or not for us, for me, I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone other than myself. Um, to me, a risk assessment, you know, that classic, this job has five steps. These are the hazards of every step. Here's the potential risk. Here's the residual risk those documents that we've all spent far too much of our lives filling out, um, I, I would distill their intention down to decision guidance. It's about saying whether you're, it's your first time doing this job or you've done this job for a hundred years, here's the things that you might not be thinking about. And we provide those to our team so that our team can, can make a more informed decision. Um, and that we're doing our due diligence as an organization and following our moral obligation to make sure as many people as possible you know, get home safe to their families, or you know, we don't end up with an environmental incident or, or whatever that impact happens to be. So 
Decision guidance is its core intention as a document. Um, I think how that has failed, in my opinion, is that the, well, I, I think companies fall into two distinct traps. Um, one of them is that companies create, you know, we understand that our employees are going to face a, a huge variety of conditions in the jobs that they complete. So depending on your opinion as a, as a risk manager, or, you know, the, the strategies available to you are, let's create, because things are going to vary, let's just create a handful of general risk assessments that are very, we'll just create one for painting. Mm -hmm. And then we know that it's not going to perfectly apply to every scenario where people are painting, but we're going to rely on our employees to, to understand those differences and make the right call. And I think if, if you look at that as a strategy, it covers you from an auditor because auditors will say, okay, I see what you did here. You've got all these general ones, you're covered. But you fundamentally failed to provide the decision guidance, which is the whole intention of the document. You're saying to the employee, this is all up to you. I'm just creating some documents to show an auditor. So, so that's one strategy and that's why that strategy doesn't work. And the inverse strategy, which certainly we experienced a lot in, in the energy space is let's create 4,000 risk assessments. Let's create this precedent where we're going to create a risk assessment for painting in the rain on a ladder in a lightning storm and a different one for painting in the, in the snow and, and all these other things. And what that does is it creates this completely untenable situation where the whole sort of health and safety department becomes completely invested in the constant creation and revision and distribution of these documents. And it creates, to a certain extent, a certain degree of liability from an auditing perspective, because the minute something happens that falls with outside of our web, we've created that precedent to say, oh, we're going to cover everything and we don't do that. So I think those are the, that's why I think these documents are bogus. I think the, they don't fit their purpose, which is to provide, provide decision guidance that reliably and consistently helps people to identify the unique challenges of the job they are doing today in the real world, you know, in the location where they are. And I think that, um, you know, solving that is, it's a complicated problem, but I think until we get to that place, uh, we're going to continue to operate in an industry that's, that's just based on, um, you know, flavor of the month. What, what's the new thing we can do? And, and we're never going to understand really what's happening and how it can be better. Yeah. I, the interesting, you, you mentioned the decision guidance, which I'm going to pull, I'm going to like, I'm going to put that on a post-it and put it here in my brain because we're going to come back to that. Um, there was, there's a couple of things that I, I think that, to be honest, I think there's a hell of a lot wrong with, with, with the current way that the safety profession, in my experience, manage risk. I think the, the word or the phrase or the process of risk assessment has completely lost all of its value in, in my experience. And I, and I think one of the reasons is it's trying to achieve too much. So I, I think that it's interesting how you kind of view it. You, you, you describe it as decision guidance, which I actually really like that phrase. And I, I actually might steal that and put it on a real post-it note on my post-it note wall over here, which is, which is just that shot. Um, 
but ultimately, I think I, there's, there's a there's a paper, a research paper, which I think I, I mentioned when we last spoke. I was going to send it to you, and I didn't. Um, so that's one one. You you forgot to send me some, and I forgot to send you some. Um, but they call it the safety of work and the and the safety work. So safety work is the work that safety professionals do: policies, procedures, risk assessments. Right, and then the safety of work is work in the. It's like a an emergent property of work. It, it just it emerges as work goes, right? And then within the safety work, they break it down into like four. I think it's four, but as I go through them, I might realize it's five. Um, they they break it down into different categories, right? Admin safety. So admin safety is building the the kind of the internal rules and regulations that you might try and the guidance is the structure of work, right? We're trying to influence the safety of work via admin safety work. Does that make sense? It's a bit convoluted, but I'm following you. Yeah. So you've got admin and then basically it's trying to influence work. That's yep. the easiest way to look at it. Right. And then you've got demonstrated safety, which is, work that's trying to demonstrate to external stakeholders that you're doing safety. Risk assessments do both of those, particularly in England, where you have things called RAMs. And America and Canada and Australia probably have very much the same thing, but might call it something different. But in England, we have something called RAMs, which is completely lost all of its value. RAM stands for risk assessment and method statement, right? And we send it over to our customer or our contractor, whoever's employed us, because uh, I'm going there to install double glazing, for example, right? So I'd send them a RAMS. RAMS is nine times out of 10 generic. Well, actually, I would say 100% of the time it's generic, right? That's what we would call demonstrated safety. I'm demonstrating that we're doing safety to my to my. Uh, customers but it's also acting as admin safety because that rams is also trying to influence how they're going to make decisions and do work in reality to your point it's decision guidance right then you've also got social safety right so this is stuff like organizational uh platitudes or sayings or things like that right a risk assessment could also become an aspect of social safety. It's something that makes us feel like we're being safe. You know, like when an employer says safety first or something like that, it makes me feel like um, nice. It makes me feel like, so very much a social exercise. A risk assessment could become a, a social piece of work if the board and everyone in the process has kind of already made a decision on how work's going to happen. And then we write the risk assessment. So why are we writing the risk assessment? We're probably just writing it so we feel a bit safe. And we're probably writing it for demonstrate to our external stakeholders as well. And then we also have physical safety. This one's the easiest one. Hard hats, guarding, PPE, gloves, things like that. Phys things that physically make us safer. And a risk assessment might also do that because it would say wear hard hat, yeah? So when I think of a risk assessment, in, in, in reference to that paper, I'm thinking, well, shit, a risk assessment is doing nearly all of that. Now, they're trying to do all of that stuff whilst influencing real work. That's a big ask for a piece of paper, to your point, which is not dynamic. So, and, and I think one of the other issues I would say is, 
when we have this conversation and we say, what's wrong with risk assessment? We make an assumption that the only reason a risk assessment exists is to make the job safer. But that's just one. Maybe the priority, yes, but it's just one. Demonstrating safety, e.g. compliance, is equally just as important to a company, uh, or at least it's second to a company. Because they need to, to your point, they need to tell the insurers we're doing a safe job. So fundamentally, a risk assessment is trying to do so much stuff for something that's really dynamic. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with risk assessment. So I can respond to this for several hours, but what I would say is with all of those things you discussed, right? So if we say, hey, if we were to have some very meta audit of our company and they say, how do you how do you demonstrate safety? How do you do admin safety? And you're, you're putting that risk assessment forward to do all of these things. I think where the industry falls flat is, okay, if you could tell me if I'm sort of some unscrupulous auditor, how do you do social safety? Hey, we prioritize risk assessments. That's how we make it clear that our company values the management of risk. And that's how we're going to do this. But I think where what we're trying to understand or, or what I think about is how do we know that actually does that? How do we measure this? How do we know that this is influencing physical safety? How do we know that the things that we all accept uh, are going to introduce physical safety barriers, let's say beyond gloves and things like that, but some of the more complex things that we do to, in, to supposedly increase the safety of work actually do so. We can't, we can't measure any of this. And so I think, what, what I think about is, is if I take several steps back, I mean, I, I come from now uh, working in, in the tech space and then there's tech space, they love to talk about first principles thinking. So that's about distilling things down to their, their most core elements and trying to understand, you know, how do we achieve, what's the shortest, what's the shortest path to the finish line? And in this case, um, what, I, what I would invite you to think about is, um, you know, I th most health and safety organizations will come out and say that somewhere between 85 and 95% of incidents are preventable. Would you agree with that? Like if you were actually in the weeds, if you were standing beside somebody, you could prevent 85 to 95% of incidents somewhere in that ballpark? In hindsight, in theory, everything's preventable, um, but without hindsight, probably not. Okay, exactly. So in that scenario, so there is some circumstance under which had things happened differently in the moment, almost everything can be preventable, sort of right down to lightning strikes. You could have a lightning rod. Like we have these, these circumstances. Yeah. So if let's just say it's 80%, which is below the projections. Yep. Well, that's great. So if we look at the, the true cost of let's say incidents, and we're not just talking about safety, but we could be environmental, et cetera, to businesses, that's roughly, a trillion dollars a year, give or take, um, globally, as far as the cost of businesses, if, if you aggregate the impacts of incidents. Yeah. If you look at that, of that trillion dollars, around 90 billion is associated with prevention, of which roughly 70 billion is buying PPE, physical barriers at the very last step. $700 billion of that is paying for insurance policies the vast majority of that money. So what I would say is we take this step back and we say, okay, 
80% are preventable, but we only spend nine point something percent of our money on prevention. We're, we're clearly approaching this problem incorrectly. If we knew how to spend that money effectively to keep people safe, you know, if we could take, if we turn that $90 billion into $200 billion, and that could somehow influence that 80 to 90% of, of incidents and remove them from ever occurring, well, there's $700 billion that's being wasted out there. And, and that disparity, I think, is, is very interesting. And so if we think about it and we dig into this, I think it goes beyond, um, well, it, it, it drills down into that, that sort of what works component. I think we get so caught up in the structure of our documentation and, oh, well, I've removed a field from my risk assessment, so I'm a real people's champion. And I think the reality is that the whole system is all anecdotal that we, we aggregate out to DART rates and all these other things, but we don't know, you know, objectively, how much does this risk assessment actually change the likelihood of an incident? And how much do the things that we encourage in our risk assessments, you know, whether it be installing physical barriers or uh, make sure you have a standby person, all these activities that we, we sort of motivate people to do through these documents, how do we know that any of them work? There's so little real research on these, these topics around the, the sort of cost versus reward component of it that we're all speculating. And the, the end result of this speculation is that almost everybody's getting it wrong. They're misallocating money. And if they knew how to make this, these sort of calculations more effectively, companies would be more than happy to spend $100 to save $700 on insurance. And I think that trying to reverse engineer that problem to really understand what is, you know, and, and this might sound frankly, sort of pie in the sky to a lot of people who deal with these problems on a daily basis. But I think there are ways to think about this. And, uh, and I think that's, that's where the most exciting things are to me in the health and safety world. And if you'll allow me one other stat I'll throw at you is that if you look at global incident statistics, I might actually be referencing a statistic from the US, but you know, from the, the onset of sort of um, OSHA, which was, let's say, in a large part, the sort of initial thrust of professional health and safety, uh, you, you, you saw a very precipitous sort of exponential reduction in workplace incidents from the time that they existed. And I think we all appreciate that. We all kind of say, hey, we're doing all these things. We're making people aware. We're putting posters to tell people to wear safety glasses. That's really going to reduce incidents. And it did until around 2010. And I think what, what I'm trying to flag here is that incident rates have been going up because we have scraped the bottom of the barrel as it relates to general awareness. And, and I would posit that a risk assessment that was created by someone in an office 200 miles away from where the work is getting done is just as virtual as that poster on the wall that says wear some glasses and until we get away from this idea that increasing this general awareness that hey you might get hurt is the be all and end all of keeping people safe at work we're just going to keep spinning our wheels i think that that plateau in that you mentioned um that diminishing returns that you mentioned from from the performance, um, I, I, that is world, worldwide. 
we're in the UK, we we still we've we've killed the same amount of people at work in the last decade, and nothing's changed. Um, so there is there is a universal plateauing of of our performance. Yeah, and and I think again, this is why I get so frustrated. Uh, again, as somebody who who was previously responsible for implementing these things, with the way. And I'm I'm taking a lot of sacred cows to the abattoir here, but uh, the, the the way that we we talk about things like behavior based safety as if it's going to revolutionize what we do when when we do look at those aggregate statistics, you know, you're nothing's changing. So if this is such a revolution in the way that we manage safety, why aren't those outcomes changing? And I think that that's where I really want to sort of push people to say what how do we take that step back and think about how do we change or how do we address our fundamental responsibility, not only as safety professionals, but as companies to make, to ensure that more people get home safe. And that, that doesn't need to be something that you're doing, you know, because you're a boy scout and you just want to do the right thing. It should be that, but that there is real economic implications for the company that like you're leaving money on the table because we're not challenging ourselves to rethink this problem in a way that we can ultimately solve it in a in a more uh, measurable and and continually improving way. Well, I think that comes back to that that kind of safety work and and the work of safety. Like, what what are you trying to achieve um, when you write a risk assessment? And that, that I think I think employers, safety professionals, would do better, even if they just started critically asking themselves that question. What are we trying to achieve with this? Nine times out, I guarantee they'll they'll subconsciously say, make people safer. That's what they'll say naturally as a, as a kind of reaction, right? Um then if that's what if that's what they're trying to achieve, then critically ask yourself, how are we achieving that? And and I think they would really struggle to answer that second question. Yeah. And so I think um, you know, maybe to be a little bit overly personal here, I'm I'm a big design guy, uh, product design more than anything, uh, or I'm an enthusiast. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, just to be very clear. And uh, with that, I think we need to, you know, on a very surface level, if we call the document a risk assessment and we complete it, like we've assessed some risk, well, then we've, we've hit the target. Like we, right in the name is is the goal. And, and I think we need to think about the way we we structure these things to say, um, you know, we, without getting into it, we work in the software space. Uh, and obviously a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of listeners deal with some platform to deal with their, their reporting and all these other things that people do. And if you think about the, what the sort of current software providers call themselves, they, the, the category, you know, you could look at Verdantic's Green Quadrant and all these other things. They call it EHS software. Well, if you're going to call yourself EHS software, all you need to do is provide some software that has something to do with EHS. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to achieve any outcome. The goal is we're going to provide you software and this is what it is. And I think if you look at other industries, there's been an evolution beyond this, this right on the nose thinking where we say, Hey, if you're going to do, um, you know, marketing strategies, you're going to have a demand generation strategy. What's that going to do? It's going to generate demand. And I think what, you know, I'm a big advocate for 
totally sort of separate from this risk assessment conversation is we as companies taking a step back and say, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit on the nose, but is this a risk reduction document? Or are we just going to assess it and say, oh, there's tons of risk, carry on your way? Uh, I hope not. And, and so how are we going to change the way we even discuss these things so that we're focusing on achieving things and not just focused on doing things for the sake of doing them, which is you know, uh, certainly a complaint from, from outside the industry that a lot of people feel like that's all that health and safety does, that it's all just become um, a compliance exercise. You know, we need to, my belief, and, and I think the belief of a lot of people that we talk to in the industry is that we need to get beyond that thinking and say compliance is the baseline. How are we going to make people's lives better? And, and certainly we need to be compliant. That's, that's a business requirement. But the whole notion of setting standards is that you set a minimum guideline for companies to reach, not that you set, you know, this is, this is the gold medal. And I think too many companies have been caught up in that. Yeah. And like for me, when we say, when we say, oh, we are, are ta- in, in safety, often the target is to become compliant. Well, it depends on where you are in the world, but like in England, our, our legislation is, is goal-based legislation. So it's very, it's, it's like a broad sweeping statement, like manage the risk as far as reasonably practicable, right? So that that's pretty much what we have to do in you in the UK. So it enables a lot of flexibility for your workplace. So I have two problems with with companies that try to achieve compliance. One, how do you achieve something that is as far as reasonably practicable? Because that's a relative term and a subjective term. Um, and ultimately you'll never know if you've achieved that compliance until you're in court. And if you're in court, you didn't achieve compliance in theory, um, unless it gets defended, obviously the, the, the next point I was going to make, uh, of which I forgot, uh, about compliance is that aiming for compliance, whether you say you aim for it or not, most people do aim for compliance. That's like saying, that's like the finance threat to saying I'm aiming to break even. And, and if, if you said that to the CEO, I'd tell you where to go. Do you know what I mean? No, and, and again, to double down on this, I, you know, I speak um, you know, in my role as, as the CEO. We, we, I talk to a lot of very senior, you know, health and safety leaders at companies with 200,000 employees, big dogs. And these people all understand this. They all understand that they're going to be excellent. If you're going to be somebody who's going to make a difference in your company in a way that's going to change your career, we need to care about efficacy. And I think that's in doing so, we need to, to just reframe that compliance should be one of the ways we, we sort of measure success. It's got to be there. You can't not be compliant. Nobody wants that. But I think to us, success is um, getting to that place where, where we're actually re- meaningfully, measurably, and consistently reducing incidents in a way that we can measure in a way, ultimately, if you know, if we're going to do this in a business in a way that we can measure so that we can replace these archaic KPIs that mean nothing around actual safety, and we can provide leaders with, with real statistics that help them understand what's going on. And in doing so, you know, just change the way that we talk so that we're focusing a little bit more on, uh, again, what, what are the times where not just somebody deviated from a risk assessment or how many work permits have we audited that were filled out incorrectly. But what are the times where we had a, a high potential, um, you know, a high potential risk activity that was not caught 
that was that was deviated from because we had the right system in place and that system caught it for us and that that shouldn't be the the responsibility of individual health and safety professionals that that we need to be moving towards this place where we can really measure those things and, and we can really sort of address them uh before we get to the right before things go wrong it's, it's interesting when you said there that you kind of got my brain going when you said are we assessing risk or are we reducing risk like I think that's a really interesting point when we say the document is called a risk assessment, e.g. it's an assessment of the situation in that moment. It doesn't clearly articulate what we're trying to achieve. And, and I think actually if we were to, if I was just to think back on, on a lot of the risk assessments I've seen and even done in, in the earlier years of my career, they were primarily risk assessments. Yes, they might have given some points to maybe advise to, to, to make improvements, but ultimately they were assessments and rarely did they actually result in significant improvement because we just kept doing them over and over again. And, and I think what it also makes me think about is, is if we were to make a, a statement that we're doing a risk reduction exercise, I do, I do think that would ultimately change the way we have that conversation. So for example, like we're not, we're not very evidence-based in safety at all. Um, I mean, there's there's numerous examples, but just two that two that spring to mind. There is there is research done in the UK by the HSE that basically says that manual handling training um, does not, based on the research, does not improve technique or ultimately seem to uh, reduce muscular muscular skeletal skeletal disorders eg bad back and stuff right so manual hand and training doesn't work so we've got we've got a piece of research there by the enforcer in the uk that says manual hand and training doesn't work right but the hse will still ask you for for your manual handling training so and this is this is the disconnect so i've even had a I run a, a panel of a, of a kind of live event and I asked the HSE enforcer, your research from your scientific department says training doesn't work for manual handling techniques, right? And we'd be better off, even though they did, they did caveat in the research to say more research needs to be done. But in theory, we would be, we would be better off by investing in strength and conditioning training, like we're doing sports and stuff, right? And encouraging fitness and, and so on. That's one example. So in your risk assessment, if you have um, manual handling training down as a mitigation to reduce injuries and improve technique, the evidence says that doesn't work. The second thing would be high-vis. There is, there is little to no evidence that a high-vis jacket makes you more visible. Actually, what makes you more visible is movement because the way that we've evolved biologically, our, our eyes are trained to pick up movement. But fundamentally, when I think about what we train people to do is you're know, walking through like a, a factory, right, or a warehouse, and you're, in, you're on the footpath and you see the forklift truck driver, he's concentrating, yeah, and he, he's reversing. I don't want to disturb him. So what do I do? I stop fucking moving. I stand still. It's like... What are you doing? It's the off, it's a different thing. So actually, again, there's a caveat here that more research needs to be done. However, 
based on the the and 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 I'm pretty much quoting the Safety of Work podcast, which is two two uh, podcasters who are basically researchers and and they read a load of stuff. They do a literature review basically, and they talk about it on the podcast. Outstanding podcast, I love it. Right, and they basically said off the back of this podcast, you'd be better off having high vis wrist cuffs on and ankle cuffs, and then just moving and just moving because the eyes are trained to pick up movement. So if your if your risk assessment says manual handling training or high vis, that's not evidence based, and therefore it's not it's proven to not reduce the risk. So you've given me some good fodder here. Uh, I think you've you've hit on exactly the point that that I think we we miss here. So how many you know again we we could sit here and speculate how many hours of a health and safety professional's time have been wasted collecting manual handling training tracking them logging that in risk assessments all these other things um and with no actual data i mean obviously there's a certain common sense element to this but you know oh we we did the measurement and turns out it doesn't make a difference well i think if we take a step back and think about uh, certainly any risk assessment I've been involved in, I won't speak for anyone else. What do you do? You sit down, you say, what are the hazards? Everybody puts on their imagination, identifies every possible hazard that could ever happen. Um, if you work somewhere that, that identifies potential risk, maybe you rate that. That doesn't happen everywhere, at least in North America. So you say, oh, we've got a potential risk of 12, as if that really means anything. And then you go and you say, oh, how are we gonna control this? And obviously you want to get down to that green number. You want to get down to whatever's going to be below the, the appropriate spectrum. So you add everything you would have done anyway, and then you choose a number that's in the green part of the risk assessment. And that's, that's the way these things happen in practice. And I think what we want to drill into is this idea that all of this is speculative. I mean, again, Obviously, there's there's good evidence to support the fact that wearing safety glasses is going to keep, you know, metal shavings out of your eye. But how often? And is it going to protect you in other circumstances? And I think that um, if, you know, if we take a step, I keep saying this, but if we take another step back. Another uh, step back? Won't be able to see the risk assessment at this point. But... <laughs> But we talk, you know, there's there's a lot of people in this space right now talking about AI and talking about, oh, we're gonna we're gonna predict things and we're gonna do all this other stuff. And I think if you if you're gonna predict something, let's just say broadly, you need consistent data from multiple sources. So if we think about that in the in the context of risk assessment, in in my judgment, the risk of a given activity is not exclusively driven by the, the, the sort of task being performed. It's really a sort of who, what, where, and when equation. So the what of the job is important. Hey, we're gonna go and be painting on the top of this ladder. But to reliably assess risk, what time of day, you know, in what location are you doing this? Are there other things taking place, which is never captured on our risk assessments and often the source of incidents. Who is the person doing this? The whole human element, which we all understand, you know, has a, an impact here. Um, you know, that's something I, I've dealt with personally, where we had people who had huge issues in their home life and then had to keep working on the ship. And, and those are obviously people who are severely distracted. But 
you know, all of those elements need to be measured consistently in so many places before we could ever measure what works as far as the, the way we mitigate the hazards of work. And so if we look at the way we do this today, you know, we say, okay, we need to measure everything about, you know, the tasks people are doing, how they choose to mitigate the hazards of that task, what those hazards are, which is dynamic based on who's doing them and where they're doing them. It, it's such a complicated problem. Well, if, if we go back and we say, oh, we're, we're going to work on preventing things, and we wonder why there's not more real science around prevention, the reality is that the only thing we try to control today is the what that we do. Say, oh, you're going to be you know, painting with two-part paints. Make sure you wear gloves and some glasses. And we don't even do that consistently. You know, you've got different people doing risk assessments on different sites, and maybe they don't think of the same controls that you think of. And then we call that a risk management system when it's one of the least systematic things you could ever do. Everybody's, we, we measure one of the four major variables and we don't do it in a way that's consistent. And we wonder why we don't know how anything works. It's, uh, yeah, I, I have some gripes with this approach. There's fundamentally something that I think that you touched on, which is is a uh, is something I've been discussing in in my kind of side little venture uh, called Project Millennium, where we we kind of it's it's like a mastermind community essentially for safety professionals. So we bring them together, and we all have we all have kind of conversations. It's very popular in the entrepreneurial community, these mastermind things. And we've said, why don't we do this in a safety professional? That, anyway, not relevant, but that, that's what we do. And, and part of it is, is um, well, it is relevant. It's a, basically a little advert for my company, but, but not relevant to this conversation. Quality plug. Quality plug. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, but my point, the reason why I bring that up was because we, we, we are having these conversations a lot. And, and off the back of this, it's clearly something that we've that we're struggling with. So we started putting together a course uh, around risk assessing, um, just an online kind of course with some workshops and stuff. And um, there's one thing that I kind of posed this question the other day: like, when in the process do you risk assess? So if you risk assess when the job is already done, or, or not already done, sorry, already decided, if you're already done, it, actually, it, it might still be better than a lot of risk assessments I've seen if you did it when you're already done. That just um, means that an incident happened and they realized they didn't have one, so they... Assess, yeah. it, would, it would be better, probably, than some of the shit I've read in the past. Um, but what... The point I'm trying to get right to the point is you're going to actually reduce risk and risk assessment needs to really be done at the at the point where you design the, the work, the, how you do the work. So when people do policies and procedures, that's a risk assessment at that point. How are we going to get this job done? So like, how are we going to design the work to reduce error, to reduce risk and so on and so forth? That is probably the most effective place to have a risk assessment. I don't think we do that. I think we do that when we go, okay, so we've decided we're doing this. We've decided this is the deadline. We've decided that we, we're going to do it. We have to do it. The boss has already kind of set all of the parameters and objectives and stuff like that. And they've already got a vision. They've already had loads of project meetings about how we're going to do this. Now let's do the risk assessment. It's too, it's too late. Because fundamentally, we can't change anything. I'm not but, saying it's one or the other. What I'm actually saying is it's probably both. 
yeah we miss out the the conversation when when, i suppose what i'm trying to say is when leaders make decisions and design the work they don't say what's the risk so if i go i'm going to buy this this plot to build build a load of houses on right and i know the deadline is tight and i know we're going to be pushed what's the risk and they might go what's the risk financially but do they say what's the risk of that tight deadline from a safety point of view Tight pressures, more human errors likely. Um, you know, stress is being going to be increased because we're under pressure. It's so many, so many things um, going on. Do we risk assess at the wrong point in the process? I suppose is my question. Yeah. So, so I think um, obviously there's a flaw in that. I don't, I don't need to to repeat it. I think you know if you if you make an amazing risk assessment that's incredibly thorough and thoughtful in a project management office. And then the, the job begins and it starts to rain. Where's that in your risk assessment? And so having some ability for, or, and I think this just goes back to the design comment I made earlier, that if we think about these tools that we use as health and safety professionals as products and say, you know, um, you use a banking app, it's got to let you send payments and check your balance and all these other things like those, those are the successes of a, a banking app. Well, if we look at our risk assessment, how are we confident that it's going to give people the decision guidance that they need to get when they're doing the job and that that's going to be appropriate for, for the actual job that they're doing and, and takes into account the idea that, you know, a risk assessment is going to be different, not only if it starts raining, but if a different person does the job. You've got somebody who's been doing it for five years, you've got somebody who it's their first day, or you've got somebody who's been there for 25 years, and they've gotten so complacent, they don't identify those risks. And I think we, I think we need to take a deep structural look at the way all of these things work and, and take that big step back to say, there are obviously best practices here, or there are certainly a lot of strong opinions around what a best practice is whether that be when you're working at height and all these other things. Respectfully, health and safety podcasts are full of people who have these strong opinions around techniques. Uh, and I, I think the reality is that until we, until we build a system that implements whatever those strategies are consistently and in a way that, that fits to the molding nature of work and then measures if they're successful, it's all for naught, in my opinion. You're, it's just... It's just anecdotal. It's just, you know, you can go and get the, the big safety award at the gala because your incident rate went down and maybe your, your company shrunk by 400 people and there was nobody working anymore. Like there, there's so many confounding variables here. And I think uh, I certainly feel a certain moral obligation. Uh, again, I, and I'm lucky because I'm not operating within the confines of a business where obviously you, you've got your monthly KPIs and you have all these issues. But, but I really feel like, you know, uh, approximately a million people die at work every year. And I think that's, you know, are we going to make that zero? All the work to zero people, I'm sorry, but I don't think so. That being said, I think it can be a lot less. And I think we're only going to get there if we, if we take this sort of cotton out of our ears as it relates to what we're doing and take that step back and say, there's got to be a better way to do this. Around how we make decisions in risk assessments, I think is fundamentally flawed as well. Um, you you alluded to earlier on around the essentially what I would call fudging of the numbers to get it below the point where we don't actually have to do anything. 
uh, or stop the work. Like, this is a five and this is a four. Oh, wait, shit, that means red. And red says we must stop the work. Boss is never going to like that. Let's get it down to let's get it down to amber, right? Which just says that we can look at this in five years' time. Um, but ultimately, I also think that you've mentioned a few times around data, right? And there's, there's something that I've challenged a lot of people on lately. Um, in the UK, there are two consistent killers consistent killers, working at height and workplace transport. Working at height is always number one and workplace transport is always two or three, you know, so top killer working at height consistently every year. And construction as an industry is always at the top, right? Nine times out of 10. And then workplace transport is always at the top. Manufacturing is normally out two or three, right? So if you work in construction, and working at height, do you consider that data as an indicator in your risk assessment that you need to do more? Because if you don't, I think that's a fundamental flaw. And I don't think anybody does. I don't think anybody assesses their risk and goes, hey, we're 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 in green, for example. However, I'm gonna bump it up to red because there is data every year that tells me this is this is a fatal risk. I'm going to push back a little bit, not too much though. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's insightful, right? Like to a certain extent, that's a certain degree of analysis of this is what the data is telling us. And there's clearly a systematic sort of uh, undervaluing of the risk of this activity in the construction sector. Yeah. I think having a certain degree of correction for that is probably the best we can do today. So I think that that's, that's tremendous, but I think what I would suggest is that it's not as though a certain degree of construction workers work on a scaffold and are miraculously thrown from the scaffold. There are real tangible things that occur, you know, that, that breakdown of control that leads to these things taking place. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, maybe I'm just cynical, but I'm a pretty firm believer that it's not the things that we predict are going to hurt us that hurt us because we've predicted them and we're working on it. And I think that it goes beyond um, simply saying working at heights. I think, again, it's a great aggregate, but to say, what are those additional conditions? Is it, could you look at those numbers and say, oh, well, you know, 70% of these people had, you know, been to the pub too late the night before, or there's a specific um, brand of harness that they wear that is particularly difficult to use. And so people aren't clipping it in and they're falling off. And it's all those, it's all of that confounding variable where certainly we can analyze the outcomes and, and look backwards and assign any sort of narrative that we want. But I think what, what we need to look at is that, um, you know, not only do we need a consistent way to identify the likelihood of certain bad things happening. So working, like, let's say falling from heights as, as the hazard there. Um, I think, I think that the way that I'm just griping about everything here, but I think the way that companies think about likelihood, uh, we spoke about this briefly yesterday, but uh, that's, that's, it's just, it's just a shot in the dark. It's just, ah, this feels possible. And, that, and that's my point is that surely if you're, if you're, if you're going, if this is not likely, but the national data is telling you that it is likely because yeah. it kills the most amount of people every year. So, so I think that, 
that's where I think we need to become more automated in this process, because right now health and safety is so driven by the individual assessments of localized health and safety managers at your company. Like you might say that and you might have to deal with the pushback from management when they say, oh, all of our risk assessments have gone up and we can't do work now. Like James is being a dick. Um, and they say that a lot. Sure. Um, and, and so that's that's an approach. But I think there's there's just so much more to it. You know, like I, I think we need to think about. Um, well, again, it, it, it's 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 all clear in hindsight because we can assign any narrative that we want, but there are so many confounding variables. It's, it's a term that we use a lot that, that it's just impossible to tell. So a customer of ours, I won't I won't give any names here, but they tried to develop a systematic approach to likelihood to address this issue to a certain degree. And what they chose to do, and, and I've heard of other companies doing this as well, is they use the sort of methodology where if an incident or, or a hazard had not led to an incident in the previous seven years, it had a likelihood of zero. And I like that they're trying to take a systematic approach to this problem, that they're kind of looking at that. But what that fails to recognize is they are not the same company they were seven years ago. They don't have the same amount of employees. They don't do the same operations. So it's, it's this way of, it's just bad data analysis. It's to say, well, it hasn't happened. So it's, it's not going to happen. That's there's so much cognitive dissonance in that approach. And any safety professional who's pushed on that is obviously going to say, well, obviously this isn't the case, but we're just trying to be systematic here. And I think this is where you know, our belief and, and my belief is that this is such a problem. So many people are, are having to pay the price for this. And that's what took me as somebody who is a professional boat driver, fundamentally. I'm a bit of a techie in my personal life, but uh, I certainly never went to school for tech and said, the only way we're going to really dig into these problems is, is by first measuring it and then using technology to uncover the things that are simply too complex for us to ever understand. Um, not only because the data is just not available to us, but because there's so much nuance. I mean, the scale at which let's, if we go back to working at heights, the amount of working at heights in sort of circumstances that occur safely are just as important as collecting data from the ones where they go wrong so that we can understand that variance. Yeah, it's simply impossible from a resource perspective for any of us to do that on an individual level. So that's where, you know, again, I, uh, that, that's what pushed me towards the technology space was to say, how can we build a framework that, that helps us to do that? Um, not just because we think it's the only way to, to again, change things and, and start to set a new paradigm here around being effective and having influence at what we refer to as the point of risk, you know, having that, that moment with the employee, uh, and have that be dynamic. And it's a, it's a very hard problem, but I think there's a, or from our perspective, it's the only way we think we can get there at least right now. Yeah, I, I think if there's ever a, if there's if there's only one space in risk management or tech, AI, and so on, let's just say there's only one space. It is helping us predict things, e.g., likelihood, and make that. It's doing all of the data gathering behind the scenes, and you know we're inputting some data, but they're but they're doing the algorithm stuff behind the scenes, and it's going here's your likelihood indicator. 
I think if it if there's ever one space where tech can help us, it, it is that 100. Ultimately, I think if you're a safety professional, and this is just my very controversial opinion, um, but if you're a safety professional, I think you would be better off removing if you're doing it the traditional risk assessment, e.g. a conversation and you're writing it down on a piece of paper, I think you remove likelihood and severity from, from the conversation. Remove it. I don't have it on the piece of paper at all. Um, and I would say that is supported by the HSE in the UK because if you download their template, it does not have a, a five by five matrix on it. It just has what's, what's the problem, who's at risk, what are you going to do about it? That's all it talks about. So I think if if you're not got tech, don't do it. Let let's let something smarter than you do that because humans, even the best humans at predicting stuff, are pretty crap at predicting stuff. So let's not predict stuff because we're not good at it. Which brings well, quite nicely onto what you guys probably do um, as you're trying to kind of help us with that process. Yeah. So so I guess. Um... Just to provide a bit of background, and, and again, I'm not I'm not here to to push it, um, but you know what we do at Opsoc again, I, we're a software company. Uh, that's kind of beside the point, but but what we're really trying to advocate for is uh, an approach to managing risk in the workplace uh, that we we've kind of coined as predictive mitigation, and we chose that name very intentionally, going back to what I said earlier, that we're talking about an outcome. Uh, we're not just talking about ticking some box. So what we want to be, be pushing for as far as what people are thinking about in the, in the industry is how are we going to predict the hazards that our employees are going to face and how are we going to mitigate them before they turn into disasters? Um, and and that's, that's this fundamental approach. As far as how we get there, again, um, we work in the software space. We can help people get to that point, but I don't think you have to or... You might have to, or you might have to build your own software. It's a, it's a big problem, but, but what we very much look at is kind of you know, the first thing you need to do if you want to move in this direction. And I think, again, this is, we think we're a great way to help you get there, but there's no reason that you couldn't get there on your own with, with some sort of thoughtfulness is first of all, you, you need to find a way in the way that your risk assessments and just all your documentation is designed to remove variation in the way that it's applied. So what I'm talking about there is if you're, I mentioned it earlier, if you've got a work permit and if you were to go to two different sites in your company and people fill out one of the little boxes, you know, they, they interpret it differently and everybody on the, the sites fills it out in a certain way. I, I've seen that personally many times. Then you don't have a safety management system. You have most of a safety management system, but it is, completely disingenuous for you to compare the data or judge the effectiveness of that system because it's clearly not being applied consistently. So what we need to focus on first is how do we remove the variation so that what we're collecting is meaningful. From there, we need to find a way to measure efficacy. So again, this becomes a really challenging problem largely just due to the scale of these things. I mean, if we're lucky, we might have one serious or two serious incidents at a given company um, you know, in a given year. So it doesn't give us a ton of information, but we need to say, okay, we're finding ways to collect this information. How do we measure what's working and what's not on a granular and impartial way? So um, doing so means you need to measure 
not just the times, you know, it, it's not just collecting documents after an incident and saying all of these documents were ineffective, but it's saying, what are the techniques that people used that other 99.9% .9 of the time that worked? And what's the variation in this, in this case? And if you can't see the variation in your documentation, you need to take a step back and say, well, then we're not assessing risk because there's an element here that's clearly influenced the risk of this task that we're not measuring. So how the hell can we call this a risk assessment? Um, and I think from there, you know, the, it's just about amplifying success. One of the techniques that, that we use is, you know, with the companies that we work with, you know, we apply this methodology, you know, through the software. So we help people kind of, um, you know, people use our app to manage the sort of day-to-day -day health and safety stuff in their business. But because of the way that we've designed it, we try to take that step back and, and be a little bit more of that analyzer and help people understand what success is. And the way that we've chosen to do it, and I'm, there may be better ways, but, but the way that we do it at our company is the whole system's designed in a way that um, it's, it's, it's quite elegant that we can apply the same tool to uh, an oil rig or an oil tanker or an Amazon warehouse. And in doing so, uh, we can collect and compare that data in, a, in an anonymous way and simply compare tasks with tasks. And in what, what that allows us to be is to be a partner to, to the companies that we work with um, it, on the sort of advisory and analysis side. So, you know, we, if you work for a company that's big enough to give you enough data to understand this, kudos to you, you probably have enough money to build one of these things yourself. Um, but, but I think for, for the vast, vast majority of companies, too much onus is placed on, on the heads of health and safety and the health and safety managers to somehow interpret these things internally. Um, and so we, we think there's, there's this very exciting opportunity to say, you know, we're, we're gonna apply this, this new way of, of solving these problems that's gonna help dynamically uh, predict risk in the moment for the employee. And we're gonna be able to do that because we're gonna have this relationship with every employee on a mobile device or on a computer or whatever works. And every one of those is gonna make us smarter. And it's not gonna be up to you to look at some donut graph at the end of the month and say, slips, trips, and falls are trending up. Let's have a safety meeting. But we're actually gonna be able to say, oh, um, we've got another company that's also doing a lot of working at heights and they're using a lot of the same equipment. And maybe they work in a totally different industry, but the tasks they're performing are the same. And we're, we're able to look at the ways people mitigate these hazards if there's a variation. And if we can see that one company's techniques are being more effective than another's, and it creates an opportunity for us to go and say, hey, um, we've been able to anonymously, not an, again, we, we can't see who's doing it, but we've been able to indicate the most effective ways to manage a given risk. And we can see that you're deviating from that. So, you know, we're your partners here. We want you to succeed. Here, here's a way that you can do that. And, and that's what's, um, you know, that we're not doing absolutely everything. You know, again, I'm not, I'm not here to say that we're, we're perfect and it's, you know, 20, 2030 and, and we're living in the future, but um, it's, been, it's been really exciting for us and, and getting back to this idea of, of defining what we do uh, by what we're trying to achieve. And for us, that's this idea of, of predictive mitigation and, and predicting what's gonna happen and mitigating before, before that does take place. When um, <clears throat> I was kind of fortunate, you gave me a little run through of your, of your software in a, in a different call. And, and um, the, 
the word correcting is not right. I, I would say that I described what you do slightly differently to how you did. So you've said a few times in there, remove variation. And you mentioned that in the call yesterday. Um, whereas I actually think looking at the initial, my initial thoughts of what, what you guys are doing is I think it actually does a good job to enable variation, uh, to allow variation, because variation for me is inevitable. Yeah. Uh, I, I am glad you mentioned that. This will mean nothing to the people who have seen none of this, but I think uh, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I should have been a little bit more specific there. So, you know, the way we, we help people assess risk is dynamic. You know, it, it can it can vary based on the task being performed, but um, it's consistent in its application and it's consistent in the data that it collects. So mm -hmm. it's that it, that took us actually a long time and a lot of consultation with the, with the companies that we work with to find that balance so that you're, you know, you're providing the guidance. It can't be totally variable because then what's the role of, of the health and safety team? How are we guiding people in the right direction? But we do need to create that space for somebody to say, oh, it's raining, you know, I'm painting, but I'm rain it's raining now. And then what are the additional precautions that, that, that we encourage in, uh, in that environment? And to do that in a way that doesn't require somebody to be looking over every shoulder or to be doing audits of these things two weeks later as if that's going to make any difference so uh when i was looking at it or kind of it set that initial generic makes it sound it undervalues it but it, it it puts that generic kind of guidance of 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 the risk and how we manage that task or whatever um in 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 the system and it enables that dynamic assessment on site um, to to be easy and quick. And that was how, that was what I my initial kind of impressions of it, and, and my my um, I was impressed by it. If I'm honest, like I thought it was it, it it solved for me initially. It solved a bit of a problem in that dynamic risk assessment where we've struggled, or I have in my career, to make that truly dynamic. Because we're doing a dynamic risk assessment, then we say, "Please write it on this piece of paper." It's no longer dynamic. Not only is it no longer dynamic, but you lose that ability to be consistent. So again, I'm to all of you out there who are cringing because you're hearing this kind of uh, um, uh, sales pitchy stuff. I mean, I I, I apologize. I'm very self conscious about that. But I think at the same time, um, you know, again, what we are, um, what we try to do is to say, what's that fundamental guidance that you care about as a company? So if you're carrying a load over 50 kilos, what do you as a company believe are the appropriate ways to mitigate that? And, and that you can capture that in a single place, you know, basically, you as a health and safety professional need to capture those things once and never again. Never again do you need to go and say this meets all of our requirements. Like let's sign at the bottom of the page or whatever. You put it in a single place, and then that again creates something that's dynamic for the uh, employee to engage in. And in doing so, they are um, they can make it flex and move to what they want. But as they make it flex and move, it's going to make that decision guidance that that you've already captured available to them. Um, yeah, and if anybody wants to see this. Uh, they can re Joe at opslock.com is my email. Send me an email. I'll show it to you, but uh, probably does not translate to audio all that well. And uh, you've just ruined the bit that I was going to say next. Right, Joe, if, if they really like what they've just heard from you, <laughs> then uh, they can contact you. So, so like if, if people have listened to you and then throughout this, they've gone, 
yeah, this, this, these are my gripes as well. And I get what you're saying. And yes, we're, we're having all these problems with, with assessing risk as well. And this tech guy seems to know what he's talking about. So maybe I should talk to him and see what OpsLock is. They just drop you an email and get a demo, I assume, as, you, as you've just kind of mentioned. They could do that. But, but I think, um, again, I, I do appreciate that, you know, if anybody thought that, I'm grateful. I'm sure half the audience thought, guys off his rocker. I gotta, you know, I'm gonna go listen to whatever, some other popular podcast. Um, the, if people are interested, I would, I would recommend certain, like if you're looking for, you want a demo, that's great. Uh, I do understand that a lot of people aren't into that, but, but if what we've talked about here has resonated, obviously we are trying to build a bit of a community here of, of people who are interested in this sort of new way of, uh, of approaching risk and interested in being involved in, in the development of the research behind predictive mitigation and want to see that implemented in their business. So um, there's, there's a few perfect for me. If you want a demo, we want to talk sales. Obviously I'm not going to complain about that. Um, if that being said, we understand that's not something that's in everybody's wheelhouse. So I want to put two other things out there. Um, one is that, um, you know, the, the way that we've been able to develop these insights is that we've been, uh, we, we, we use what's referred to as a, a design thinking approach to reevaluate the fundamental intentions of, of processes at companies that we worked with. So we said, how's your incident investigation process work? We boiled it down and we said, hey, your six step process actually has 44 steps and it, it's not, if you look at the way you're spending your energy, it's not focused on achieving your goals. Um, and, and that's a, a sort of a methodology that was, was developed and has largely been published by, by Harvard. Um, but, but we've kind of co-opted that process and created a version of it for health and safety professionals. Um, so, so we offer this service that we call transformation design, understanding that so many professionals are looking for ways to, to kind of modernize the way that they approach things. And if you're interested in, um, well, the way that this process works is that our team, you know, product designers, et cetera, will engage with you on a call and we pick a single process, kind of whatever your biggest pain point is, and we break it down with you, we map it out, and we can then evaluate it from a kind of impartial perspective and help you to not only identify yourself, ways that you could streamline this process and make it more effective with fewer steps, but it, we also create some nice artifacts that you can bring to your board or bring to your leadership that, that we, you know, people we work with have found really effective for making change happen. So again, if that sounds interesting, uh, joe at opslock.com or, or go as op, opslock.com is our website. You can, I'm sure, find a way to contact us there. So that's option A. Option B is for people who are looking for something a little bit more tangible, we do have a, um, you know, what I would consider the the coolest uh, safety observation software I've ever seen. Um, and we, we've just developed a version of that that's deliverable on its own. Uh, so you don't need to, you know, we understand people use big platforms and, and change is hard. So if you're interested in maybe sticking your toes in the water, uh, there are a few of the predictive mitigation elements in this platform, but we've developed a version of it that you can deploy in your company, unlimited users, um, and you just have to sign up for our website and uh, I might, you know, we'll, we'll have a chat about finding a way that we can make sure that rebranding safety listeners, um, you know, are going to get priority access to that because it is invite only at this point. But uh, we do want to 
kind of put our money where our mouth is and, and provide people with something really cool. If they're in a long-term contract or something else, we want to give them that opportunity to engage with us. Cool. Yeah. So they can message me and I, and I shall decide whether they are worthy to, to see the one software that rules them all. So yeah. You, you can see how many, uh, project Miletium uh, events they've attended and rank them based on that. I'm well done for pronouncing it correctly. Everyone gets it wrong. If you're not a project Miletium member, then no, you're just not having it. You're just not having it. No. Yeah. There you go. People will just message me if they're, if they're curious, drop me a message. Uh, they all know my details. If not, they're all in the description. We'll put your details, Joe, in the description as well. And we'll put the website in the description as well so people can um, people can uh, get hold of you. And then me as well. And hopefully give it a bit of a, give it a bit of a, try and break it is kind of what I normally tell people when they're, when they're trying stuff. Sounds good to me. I mean, we, we've had people try and break it. We work uh, even offshore. So uh, it even works if, if you have no internet. Um, so we're, we're pretty robust on the breaking category. So we'll, we'll, we'll take that challenge. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, Joe. It was a good chat. And uh, I hope, I hope people didn't find it too ranty. I can rant about ri uh, risk assessments all day long. And I, I think you can as well. At least all day long, if not for several days. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Joe. It's nice to meet you, buddy. Nice to well, meet you again, too. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, hope you have a great day. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that bonus episode from OpsLock. It's a great guy, Joe. I thought it was a great chat. You know, a lot of what Joe has to say about risk assessment really resonates with me. As you know, that's a, a big focus area of mine. Um, it's something that I, I think what we've been doing, maybe not wrong, but we've at least missed the potential of risk assessment for so long. Ultimately, I do think tech has a big part to play in that. So it's a pleasure to put out this bonus episode from Opslock. I'm really intrigued with what they're doing. I think it's a really interesting company to keep keep an eye of. If you're not sure right now, then at least keep an eye of them. But ultimately, if you are sure right now, all the websites, everything we mentioned in the description below. And if you're keen to kind of play around with it, you can drop me a message. I'll connect you up with Oxlot and you can uh, be part of their, their not, not essentially trial, but their like guinea pig process. You can play around, you can try and break it and so on and so forth. Uh, if you're interested, let me know. I'll be happy to pass you on um, to, to Opslock and to Joe to let you kind of play around with it and see if it works for you. And, and, you know, I think it's good. You know, I wouldn't partner up with these guys and do this episode if I didn't think it was good. I was impressed with their platform when they took me through it. I think it does solve a lot of problems and I think it does really create a really good connection between that kind of generic guidance and the dynamic nature, the variation of work. Uh, makes it easy and streamlined. So I, I was I was really, really impressed. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got some value out of that. Even if OpsLock isn't for you, I hope this episode really brought you some value. I hope it really got your, your cogs and your brains going and, and provoked some thoughts. Don't forget to check out OpsLock in the website and everything below. But ultimately, I'll catch you next time on Rebranding Safety. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. 
No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. 